welcome to Shrink Wrap, a podcast where Fran and Becky give proper respect to various mental health and wellness topics while adding in a little bit of smart assery that they just can't seem to contain. This podcast cannot and does not constitute therapy advice. However, we do hope that you find the information we share with you helpful and entertaining. Please be advised that this podcast discusses topics that can be sensitive to some listeners. Use appropriate discretion. Welcome to today's podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about depression. Fran, what what do you see in your practice when it comes to depression? A lot, a little? I don't see any depression. Everyone is happy AF, Becky. Yes, Mm -hmm. probably because they listen to our podcast. Exactly. How could you not be? Food for the soul, that's right. (laughs) No, people always ask me that. They're always like, how much depression do you see? And I'm like, it constitutes the majority. Depression and anxiety together constitute the majority of the, uh, the people I see. Absolutely. Same here. And I think with the pandemic, it's gone way up. Yeah. uh, Yeah, it has. Um, And people always ask me, like, what is depression? And I always, you know, that's such a tricky thing to try and answer because you have your clinical definition of the the DSM-5 Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is what we have to use to diagnose. Um, And then, but that's as dry as heck. And so you don't want to really, well, let me tell you exactly what it is. 1A. Um, But you want to make them, you know, you want to make it relatable and understandable. So when somebody says to you, what is depression? How do you explain it to them? I mean, I think it's different for different people. It manifests itself in different ways. You know, for some people, the predominant feature is lack of motivation and procrastination. They just have zero energy to do anything. Mm -hmm. And then for some people, it's crying, crying, crying. And for other people, it's just apathy, like, eh, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't care, whatever. And a lot of I don't care is very associated with teenagers. I see that a lot. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and it's kind of hard to, wouldn't you say, to balance out, and I'm only speaking because I have a teenager, it's kind of hard to balance out what is depression and what is just teenagers being teenagers? Because they're by nature, I think, a little apathetic if it isn't something that they love to do. Right. So they either want to do it all the time or just, I'm not interested. Yeah. So I think it's the conglomeration of symptoms. So it's got to be more than just two. The other symptoms that I would see is can't concentrate, can't focus on things. I see low self-esteem. And then when they're talking to me, when people are talking to me, they're beating themselves up verbally with all their negative self-talk. I can't do this. Nobody likes me. I don't want to go anywhere. I feel like I'm avoiding things, all that kind of stuff. That inner critic that it's he's strong. I always say it's a he. It can be a she. Um, But it's a strong voice that basically says, oh, my gosh, you're so stupid. How could you have done that? I can't believe you said that. Your boss hates you. And then it just runs on a loop. And and that does. It gets really grating on somebody. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing is I'm seeing a lot more suicidal thoughts and a lot more suicidal actions. Are you seeing that? Knock on wood, no. I'm very fortunate that I've, I've seen suicidal ideation. I wouldn't say it's any more than it's been. And suicidal ideation, um, to clarify, is I, I always describe it as a spectrum. It goes everything from... I think we've all had the thought, I just don't even want to wake up tomorrow. I'm tired of this shit and I'm done. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do anything, but you're just like, I don't know, I just want to sleep for like a year. All the way to as soon as I leave your office, I'm going to you know, drive my car into a ditch and try and hit a culvert and kill myself and everything in between. And so when we talk about suicidal ideation, I've had people say, you know, I just don't know how much longer I can do this. And then we do the follow-up questions just to see how intense, how severe... Um, really how strongly they feel about 
acting on it. And surprisingly, a lot of clinicians don't go that next step. You know, even if someone is saying flat out, well, I think about driving in front of a car, but I would never do it. Yeah. Um, to follow up and really say, okay, wait a minute here. What exactly have you thought about it? Do you have a plan? How long are you fantasizing about these types of things? Some clinicians are not taking those extra steps. And shockingly, sometimes when I ask those, I'm just like, oh, wow, we've gone really far. Yeah, I would agree. I almost always do. And I think it's because my formative counseling years, like when I when I was new in the business, I was at Northern State University, which, of course, you're working with a high-risk age group just by nature, that 18 to 25-ish. And so we had that conversation, and it was drilled into our heads you will have that conversation. If somebody is depressed, you are going to say, have you ever thought about harming yourself? Have you ever thought about killing yourself? What have you thought about? Mm -hmm. And getting real specific. So if the person is saying, yeah, I have a written plan. I've written letters to other people saying goodbye. What do you do? You know, I'm going to, I have so many follow-up questions. I mean, we really have an intense conversation because if it is as intense as that would imply, then we're looking at most likely having to be hospitalized. And if they're not willing to be hospitalized, then that means usually having to have law enforcement come in to make that determination. And nobody, you don't, I don't, even when you know it's for their own good, it's never fun forcing somebody to do something they don't want to do. Um, so I will say to them, okay, you've written these letters. Um, tell me, how would you do it? Because we know the more specific they are, the more thought that's gone into it, the more serious it is. And then I will say, like, if somebody says to me, um, well, I've thought about shooting myself. Okay, do you have access to guns? No. Have you ever used a gun? No. Do you know where you'd get a gun? No. Then I know we probably don't have to be hospitalized that second. However, I probably want to let this person's loved one know. And I would say to them, can I, do it? can I have your written permission to talk to your loved one that they probably shouldn't be left alone just in case? Right. And maybe have some of the, the medications, knives, um, anything like that taken and put away for a while. Do you find, and you don't work with teens as much as I do, but older, older mm -hmm. teens, more cutting, more burning of themselves, more self-harm, that kind of thing or no? What is your experience with it? Definitely more cutting. And it used to be like 20 years ago, it was so rare. If it happened, all the alarms and bells and whistles went off. Now, when you see it, because it's so common, it's a whole different ballgame for a clinician. So explain to me what the difference is then between somebody who's suicidal and somebody who's cutting. A lot of the teenagers that I work with that are cutting are doing it because they're bored or they're frustrated. It's not because they're necessarily sad and they want to die. And it gives them, it's hard for people to imagine this if you don't do it, and I haven't done it. So, But what I hear from them is like they're self-harming, and so you're drawing blood, right? And it's producing endorphins in your brain. That feels good. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like how a woman feels after she breastfeeds. It's like, ah. And so what they don't understand is that that in and of itself can become addictive. So yeah. as you go on, then you have scars from your neck down to the tip of your toes because you have to cut deeper. You have to do more damage to get the same hit. So my teenager comes to me and says that he's been cutting. What do I do as a parent? Do I freak out and take him to the hospital what no. would you recommend? No, freaking out is is never good. Not to say we as parents have never freaked out. I yeah. freaked out. But try not to freak out because just the fact that they came to you is a cry for help. 
And so just getting more information from them, like, okay, you know, what triggered it? Do you know? How can I help you? How many times have you cut? How long have you been cutting? And then just saying, you know, I really would feel good if you decided to get some therapy. Let's find a therapist and encouraging them to. Yeah. Well, you know what? Therapy's stupid. I don't want to go to therapy. Now what do you do? Then you say, you know what? You're right. It is stupid, but we're going anyway. Then you can prove to me that you're right. We're going to find yeah. the stupidest therapist in the in the phone book. Let's yeah. look. Yeah. Her name's Becky. <laughs> Schultz. No. Just kidding, Becky. Love you. <laughs> That's the other Becky at our office, and she's phenomenal. <laughs> and she will laugh at that. Um, no, I think because, and I think it's, it is okay to freak out, but I always tell parents freak out in your head. Mm-hmm. Like you need to be total poker face. And if in your head, you need to be going, holy shit, is this really happening? I can't believe this is happening, but take a deep breath and just have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if you freak out, they're going to feel like, why would I ever bring up anything to my parents? They did something that you should freak out about when you're really trying to make sure that they know it's not normal. I don't want to say it's normal, mm-hmm. but it's not horrible. And I think if you say, Joey, don't be a dumbass, or you call them names or belittle them in that way, I mean, obviously, they're never going to come to you again. And I think parents, they don't mean to do that, but it's so terrifying and they feel so like guilty. Yes. Maybe I'm not being a good enough parent. Maybe I caused this that when they hear it, they do freak out and say something they shouldn't say. What the hell were you thinking? Right. Cutting on your arm. Now you're going to have a scar. Exactly. Yeah. Which there's some really cool tattoo work that can be done with scars. I mean, because once once the scar's there, it's there. And so you can either be ashamed of it or you can turn it into beauty. Yes. So what is the difference between clinical depression, seasonal affective depression? Um, situational depression? Situational and also the kind of depression you get before your period. Some people Oh, do. yeah, the premenstrual. I, years ago, I did have a client who had legit PMDD, which is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And I kid you not, we could down to the, the week know that she was going to be intensely suicidal and um, not feel safe, like not trust herself to not act upon those suicidal urges. Got her hooked up with an OBGYN. We continued therapy, but mm-hmm. got her hooked up with a, with a doctor, got her on the right birth control. Boom, no more PMDD. And so it's a, it's a real thing. We joke about it. We joke about it in our house. You know, it's, oh, it's PMS week. Oh, my gosh. Which PMS is premenstrual syndrome, which is a few steps down from the PMDD. And maybe it didn't get joked about in your house, but it is joked about all the time in our house. My husband joked about building a panic room for, you know, if all three girls had synced up and then he would just grab our son and they would roll under the doors. It was closing and we would just stay out there till it was safe to come out again. <laughs> Well, back in the old days, they had a red tent. The women would go out to their little red tent. Uh, okay, that's how far is the old days? Like, because like that's yesterday, little... like when I was growing up. Are we talking eighteen forty six or are we talking six ten? Because I think we're talking times, ancient Native American yes. was the red. T- but even in traditional times, yes, they had their place to go so that men didn't think they could still get laid while the women are menstruating. 
And the women would like braid each other's hair and they would nurture each other. <laughs> Which I think okay. that is a highly romanticized version of what the Red Tent situation was like. <laughs> what do you think they were doing? We were out all there? waiting over chocolate. It's because they were unclean while they were uh, having, while they were on their cycle. So they sent them away to go. I don't think it was so the men wouldn't bother them so, during. It was a casting out situation. The Bible was, says, the Bible, hey, somewhere in the Old Testament, it does say, you shall not lay with your wife. While she is bleeding because she is unclean. The red tent, as I understand it, is an actual Native American tradition where the women were revered. Like this was a very sacred time of the month for them. And so they were left mm. alone to do their thing. But biblical, I think, was more what Brody was saying. Right. More yeah. shame-based. But still, right. when you get a bunch of women together in a tent, do you yeah. honestly think they were like, I'm so unclean, I'm bleeding? Or do you think oh, they no. were talking shit and they yes. were having fun and they were like, oh did my God. Did you hear what Esau did this week? Oh my God. such a jerk. Cain and Abel, did you see them go at it? It was unbelievable. No, I had to, you say that that they could get away from their husbands and not have to have sex. I kid you not. This came up on my Facebook feed where it's a new form of period something or another that you can use while you're menstruating. And that way you can still have sex with your partner and it's not icky and disgusting. And my first thought was that was my week of reprieve. Mm -hmm. Like that was the one week where I could say, "Mm, sorry, Aunt Flo is here. Why? I mean, well, we're generalizing. Maybe some women, some because do. some women do get more horny during that time. Yep. With the hormones. Yeah, I could see that. I know. For me, it was just a knee jerk going, ooh, no. Well, because it doesn't feel good sometimes. You yeah. just feel bloaty and tired and ugh. Yeah. But what you're saying about the PMDD, the premenstrual dysphoric disorder, that can be pretty scary. That Very can scary. be where women are having like thoughts about killing people, like their children, or I mean, doing pretty extreme things. And in that regard, we do have to refer them to a medical professional. Yes. And sometimes that medicine actually doesn't have to be taken year round. You can actually take it during the premenstrual time for some women. And that is effective. Yeah, exactly. I think so. Then we talk about the biggest thing I get is clinical versus situational. I have Mm -hmm. people ask me that all the time. And how do you explain it when they ask clinical versus situational? The way that I explain it is that, I mean, we're assessing at the first time what is going on in your life. And I mean, if the guy is going through a divorce, his kids don't want to see him and he just got fired from work, pretty sure we can consider the situational factors, right? Right. But if it's something like um, clinical and this has been going ongoing or he's had major depression in the past and now we're seeing it again be reactivated. There's a big family history. Right. There's a big, it is genetic. Yes. Depression and anxiety are both genetic. Yes, they are. And at that point in time, you know, there may be one stressor that kind of triggered its reactivation, but it's not to the point that it would really justify what you're seeing in terms of the person isn't getting out of bed, they're having yeah. trouble functioning, they're not showering, that kind of thing. I always ask people too, when I ask if there's a history of um, depression or anxiety in your family, and they're like, oh, I don't know, it's not something we ever talked about. I always then follow up with, is there a history of substance abuse or addiction? Because I think there's been generations where, you know, oh, uncle so-and-so is just an alcoholic. Well, and then so was uncle so-and-so and and aunt so-and-so and and my grandpa and grandma. 
Well, now I'm starting to wonder, were they self-medicating? Because back then you just didn't, you didn't go to a doctor because you thought you might have depression. You didn't go to a therapist. But you did have a nervous breakdown. That was okay to say. Yes. Julia had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. What did they say? Oh, the vapors. Oh, she's got the vapors. She's, Yeah. yeah, hysterical. She's hysterical. Right. All right. So what is then SAD? What does that stand for and what is it? Seasonal affective disorder. And I think it is a thing here. I think it's one of those terms that gets thrown around quite a bit. Um, I don't think people technically have seasonal affective disorder like they think they do. However, we do get the winter blues around here. We do not get enough sunshine, which then your vitamin D is affected. And when your vitamin D levels are low, then you can have symptoms that look like depression. And a myth associated with SAD that I was not very aware of is that you can, we think it's always during like fall Mm -hmm. when the lights go down and we go to bed early, especially we are in South Dakota. And I know you guys, most of you probably think we're attached to North Dakota, but they're two separate states. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because I'm from North Dakota and we're better up there. Okay. 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 So anyway, um, it actually can happen for some people in the summer, bizarrely, that they only get really depressed during the summer months. So why would that, why would that season affect their depression? It's a good question. And I don't really know. That's interesting. But it's a cyclical sort of thing. Then if I, and this is just me speaking off the top of my head here on my high knee, I would also then start looking at what are some things that have happened to you in the summer? Because now I'm wondering, is it, is it seasonal affective disorder or is it a grief reaction? Could be. And it could be both or it could be one or the other. It could be. But um, light therapy is something that we could recommend yeah. for SAD. And you had put on our, we have a little colleague work text thing. One that you utilize. Yeah, correct? I can't think. Honestly, I wish I could think of the name of it, but I can't. But I got it off of Amazon. It was right around fifty-five dollars. Uh, it works beautifully. I just put it on my, um, put it on my desk, and then over the noon hour while I'm doing paperwork, it has a timer, and I just sit there for twenty minutes with it. I'm not looking directly at it because it is bright. However, um, I really thought these light therapies were kind of bullshit. I'm going to be honest with you until I worked with two, three psychiatrists and every single one of them had them on their desk. Really? Yes. And I thought, okay, we have three medical doctors here who all have the light boxes on their desk. There might be something to this. And you know, that might be a good idea. Like you think about morticians, especially during COVID who have super high suicide rates, you know, just having... That and nobody would know what it was unless you're applying makeup in front of it, whatever. They're gonna be like, What is that? It kind of looks like a makeup, it does, like those old fashioned, but there again, who cares if they know what it's for? Exactly, you know what? I'm in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and I need some freaking light, right? Here's my light box. I just tell people maybe don't get the one that's you know $7.99 at your box store because you want to make sure it's decent quality. I like the idea of one that you can, it's the standing one that you can adjust. You could actually be like on your treadmill or on your bike and getting light at the same time. It's like, I'm all about multitasking. You are. I really, I do know this about you. You know, I I do know this about you. Yeah. But what it does is it helps production of serotonin in your brain, Mm -hmm. melatonin, which helps you sleep. And one thing that I learned about I thought was great because a lot of people that are depressed, their sleeping is messed up. Yes. They want to sleep all the time. They can't sleep they, at night. They, right. Yes. Or they're sleeping for hours and hours and hours during the day. It can help reset your sleep-wake yeah. schedule, which is awesome. It really is. 
I, I just think when my sleep schedule gets out of sync, I, it's horrible. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And it's, it's ucky when you can't sleep. And that is a critical factor to consider with depression. I mean, that's mm-hmm. like, to me, the number one go-to. What is your sleeping like? Yep. And that's, and your doctor has things that he or she can do for you. Um, there's just different natural path things you can do. Some people try melatonin and it works really great. And that's an over-the-counter thing. Um, but visit with your physician. There's some ways to remedy that. And also to rule out, what else do you have? Do you have hypothyroidism? Do you have a heart issue? What other physical things can manifest themselves and look like depression? Yeah. Hypothyroidism is a big one. It is. They actually look exactly the same. And that's why I tend to, if somebody presents to me with depression that's never been evaluated, I will tell them to go visit with their physician just because I know that needs to be ruled out. And side effects of the medication that they're taking. I will never forget years ago, this doctor referred to me a very elderly woman and she was horribly depressed. And she's like, this isn't me. I've never been like this. I feel miserable. And we're like trying to go back and be private detective. And it was exactly when she got prescribed this new medication that she started feeling horrible, changed the medicine and she was fine. So... There's actually a medication, and I can't think of what it's called, but it's prescribed. I've only seen it prescribed for breast cancer survivors. Um, I don't know if it's prescribed for other ones, but it. I've seen. I've had two people I know of go insanely anxious with like, medication. Yeah, with that medication. I mean, you can go back to the day, and so I always say to them, "You need to go. You need to visit with your doctor. You need to visit with your oncologist, and we need to see if we can figure something out." Like clinically anxious, jumping out of their skin. Mm-hmm. And evaluating what kind of birth control you're on. If you're a woman, that can kind of have symptoms like that. But also Accutane for acne. Yes. That's why they screen it so carefully. I don't know. Have you ever been on Accutane? I haven't. uh, My oldest was. I was on Accutane. And it's the pregnancy test, but they're always asking any thoughts of depression, suicide, you know, all that. Because it can. Yeah. And it can trigger it, too. Don't Mm. get me wrong. I was glad I took it. Right. But you have to be on top of it. And and some supplements that you can get over the counter can mix with different medications and, and all of that. So you, you really do. If you have symptoms of depression, you really do need to, um, like you said, play private detective and kind of visit with some professionals and figure out where exactly some of this could be coming from. So you know what I want to talk about? I want to talk about what happens in relationships when one person is depressed. Mm-hmm. What happens? Well, you know, I can talk about that for days. Um, I've had clinical depression probably my whole life, but it wasn't diagnosed until I was 19. And I was one of those people that wasn't going to take medication for it. And so I probably wasn't on medication regularly until my late 20s, because I just thought if I ate healthier, if I exercised or, you know, did all the things, but it's clinical, it runs in my family. It just is what it is. Um, We've had really open talks with our children about it, where in our family, you get really nice legs, beautiful lips, and depression and anxiety. You just have to take the good with the bad, you know? And we've just been real open about it. Um, And so my husband, I always joke that he's got a special place in heaven. So again, my high school sweetheart, he's known me since I was eight. And so he's been there. I mean, we we didn't start dating then. Um, We started dating when I was a teenager, but he's been there for all of this. And I remember a time when um, insurance wasn't covering my antidepressant and we we had little kids. we were, I was a starting out professional, so we didn't have a lot of money. And so for me to stay on the medication that was working was going to be, I think, like $350 a month. 
or I could go on the generic. So I went on the generic. It didn't work. So side note, what I learned at that time for the FDA, your medication only has to be 70% as effective as the name brand to get um, generic status. So I go out, I went on a couple of different companies. It didn't work. It didn't work. For me, my main depression symptom is irritability. Like I will cut a bitch. It is insane Mm -hmm. how freaking cranky I get. And it's horrible. It's a horrible way to feel. And I remember, um, it's burned in my brain. I was putting clothes away and he stood in the doorway and he said, what do we need to do? Like I will cash out retirement. And I looked at him and I said, you can get away from me. Do you know how lucky you are? Like I am a miserable bitch and I am stuck with myself. Mm-hmm. And then um, visited with my, uh, lots of visiting with my physician. I've had a couple of really great doctors over the years who, because um, I can be, I'm kind of a bossy patient too. So they've always been really good. And for him, there's no, you can't tell me what to do, especially as a therapist. If I'm feeling depressed, you can't tell me what to do. I know what I need to do. However, the, the magic words from healthy relationships, right? Babe, what do you need from me right now? That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. Music what do you need from me? You know, sometimes I need to be left alone. Sometimes I need him to cook. Um, funny story. I needed him to cook the other night. I said, hey, I'm just, I'm burnt out after today. I need you to do the cooking. And so he's like, yeah, I absolutely can do that. Our youngest was away with, I don't know what she was doing. And I hear the the pantry doors open and he's like, well, would you like a can of corn heated up? Or <laughs> did you want some ramen? <laughs> Like, you know what? The Schwan man was here, so I'll just have some egg rolls. There you go. <laughs> but he was willing. He was willing he was to heat willing. up a can of corn. I mean, the man's a saint. Yeah. What? Don't give him that much credit. But I give you credit <laughs> as a clinician. I really do. Because there should not be a stigma for people right. that get help, and especially us, that we have to take care of other people. Yeah. It's so, I love that about you and that you're so open and forthcoming about yeah. that. Um, because it is... We can only take people as far as we are right now. Right. And if that self-care is so critical right now. Well, and I, I wasn't always this open about it. Um, I've had other clinicians. I said something about um, switching medicines or whatever. And they're like, what? You, you take what? I'm like, I take Zoloft, generic Zoloft. What do you take that for? Uh, clinical depression? Really? And I was like, you're a freaking clinician. Like, you should not be judging this. Like, hell. But then I realized that that's just where they're at. Uh, But one of my mentors was uh, Dr. Gididar and anybody that ever had him for a psychiatrist, he was a great man. And he he said to me one time, we were talking about a patient on Two North and he said, if we can't embrace what they can do despite or because of their mental illness, we have no business doing what we're doing. And that just resonated. I thought if I can't as a clinician say, I have clinical depression. I've had it most of my life. And what I love is when people say, I would have never guessed that about you. Mm-hmm. Well, because it's managed. This is what it looks like when it's managed. I have very, very, if you take COVID out of it, very, very, very few depressive days. Mm-hmm. But I will say, and I've said this before, December and January were dark months in the Kook household. And mm-hmm. I don't like that. I'm sarcastic. I'm funny. I love to laugh. I love to have fun. I love to play games. And I just wanted to sit. I wanted to sit with my dog. And that's the thing. I mean, it really damages relationships. If that person that's depressed decides, I don't need help. I don't have a problem. You have the problem. Because I hear from couples, 
The person doesn't want to have sex. They're not taking showers. They're eating a bunch of food and gaining a bunch of weight. They're Or not eating irritable. food and losing a bunch of weight. Right. And they're up all night because they can't sleep. So they're gaming. And it is. it takes a toll because the other person, I'll be empathetic for today. Like, oh, you're hurting. What can I do, babe? Yeah. Right? right? By day 30, you're like, what the fuck is going on? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You are killing us right here in the house. We can't do this anymore. Yeah. And so that's why I like telehealth, this aspect of it, because it's so easy to go in the office, shut the yeah. door, log into your therapist, get your hour, mm-hmm. and you don't have to sit in a waiting room. Nobody sees you. I think, too, for the person married to the person with depression, you can't come in and say, you know what you need to do? Oh, the fixer. Or or with the best of intentions, what can I do to fix this? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. However, when they say that, what can I do to fix this? Well, I need you to take the kids for a couple of hours because they're driving me nuts. Or I need a weekend getaway. Or I need to go to Sedona for a week. (laughs) That's how saintly he is. (laughs) You know, but the person with depression needs to be able to articulate, this is what I need. And for the love of God, go get help. There's no shame in that game. I, I, I say this all the time. If I could give people with depression, if I could give them a taste of what it feels like to have managed depression, they would be on top of that in a heartbeat. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, just get, you know, just pray. Just get over it. Pray the sadness away. You need to have more Jesus in your heart. I got a lot of damn Jesus in my heart. You know what Jesus told me? Go on generic so long. <laughs> get mad now. And take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, I'm trying not to say absolutely. Um, and there's a lot of people, and this is why I struggled with being vocal about it for a long time. Do not treat me differently. If anybody listens to this podcast and comes up to me and treats me like freaking stained glass, you I'm going to punch you. I'm going to punch you so hard. Because remember, irritability is my main symptom. <laughs> and she knows how to shoot again. I, I will punch you. So don't treat them like, you know, we're not ready to fall apart. We're just experiencing a, a tough a tough bump in the road. But don't you find, at least in the couples you see, if somebody has depression and the other person doesn't believe mental health issues or doesn't understand mm. them. And by the way, if you love someone... Again, premarital, go to a counselor beforehand, especially if one of you has depression or anxiety. You make sure that partner believes it's a thing yeah, or is at least willing to get educated about it and support you about it because that can cause such heartache in a marriage. I do a lot of, and I saw this at a workshop years ago, um, it is Depression 101, where a medical doctor was speaking at a conference and he said, basically what this is, is neurotransmitters, you have a neurotransmitter factory and a neurotransmitter storage site. And in a healthy brain, there's a foreman in the middle who takes the neurotransmitters back and forth. In a brain with depression, the factory is churning them out. The storage unit's fallen short. The foreman went out to drink. The foreman's just sitting there playing sit and spin. The factory's like, hey, we've got all these neurotransmitters. And he's like, meh, don't worry about it. And so all an antidepressant does is come in and puts the foreman on a work improvement plan and says, you need to pull your thumb out of your ass. And we need to make sure that we're getting neurotransmitters from the factory to the storage site or from the accents to the dendrites across the synaptic gap if you need to be technical. Mm -hmm. That's In a nutshell, it's a lot more complicated than that, but in a nutshell, that's what it is. You know, I, in terms of relationships too, you think about parents that have depression or Mm -hmm. a parent that's pregnant, 
There was a story, remember that story not very long ago of that woman, and I believe she was a mental health professional. She drove her car into the lake with her kids. Oh my gosh. And I, my first thought was, I want somebody to reach out to her in some way, shape, or form, because a, a person that is thinking clearly, um, of course, would never do that intentionally, but women can become so depressed and I do see this more with a woman than with a man because hormones after having a baby, right? Yes. So they can act in crazy ways. Like, for example, think to themselves, the only way that my kids are going to be better off is if we are not alive anymore because I'm just going to cause them pain and heartache. So I'm going to save us all. Literally, that kind of yeah. thinking. Who's the mom who drowned her kids in a bathtub like 10, 20 years ago? Do you remember who that is? Mm -hmm. Ringing a bell? I can't. It, like, I wish I could think of the name, and I'm so sorry that I can't. I watched a documentary on her. She had postpartum, mm -hmm. and the lack of support this woman had. Um, I mean, she. It was one kid after another, and the lack of support was phenomenal. She reached out in so many different ways to say, "I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this." Um, her personality had changed. She wasn't practicing hygiene. The church that they belong to, um, their belief was your older kids are the ones that get baptized. And so really, I get goosebumps. Really, when she when she drowned her kids in the midst of postpartum depression, they they hadn't been baptized, therefore were incapable of sin. So she really thought she was guaranteeing them a spot in heaven mm. by killing them so young. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm talking about. That thinking yeah. becomes so distorted. And I just, it's heartbreaking. It is. And how do you overcome a stigma like that? You know? Well, she gets to do it in prison. And I, is it right? Is it wrong? I'm not sure. I, I can honestly tell you, I don't know. It's heartbreaking how mentally ill she was at the time she did it. Mm -hmm. Brooke Shields wrote a book about her postpartum depression. Down comes the rain. Yes. And of course, Tom Cruise was very supportive of her. <laughs> well, Scientology, all you need to do is sit in a room and get browbeat for a while and then you're magically cured. There you go. So I mean, and I gave her a lot of credit too for, for speaking, speaking out about that because that's another form of depression that is very debilitating and shameful. Talk about shame. You're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to love your baby. And these people are just like, I don't want to see it. I yeah. have no connection. I don't even know why I had a baby. I will say that the medical professionals that I have worked with in Aberdeen are on top of it, like really on top of it. They're screening for it and they're referring almost immediately. Which is fantastic. It, it is. Because depression, and, and I tell people all the time, depression, you know, when you start feeling this way, go seek out help. Don't wait until you haven't showered for a week and don't wait until you feel like slitting your wrists. You know, don't wait for those things. You know, go get help right away because the sooner you intercede, the faster you get better. The other thing to assess for if you've got a client that has depression, any age, do you have a history of any kind of abuse? Yeah. That's a big question because uh, it could be trauma induced, could be undealt with sexual abuse from years prior. So that's something to assess. And I often find too that people that are really deeply depressed are amazingly funny and creative. A lot of them yeah. have that slant to them. I love that about them. And you think about like people like Daryl, is it Darren Hammond? Daryl Hammond, Saturday Night Live. Robin Williams. Robin Williams, Van Gogh. I mean, yeah. there are so many very famous, um, talented humans that have suffered with depression. Mm -hmm. And more and more people are coming out with that. Because we lost most of those people too soon. 
which is heartbreaking. It's a miracle that Darren Hammond is still alive. Daryl Hammond. Is he still alive? Oh, yes. you know, you know who I'm thinking of? The talk radio guy. Um where he killed his wife and then killed himself. No, that's not who I'm thinking about. Yeah, you're thinking of this the other guy. This guy was the Bill He Clinton. had a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. Daryl Hammond did, yeah. Yeah, he does. He did SNL, but he does a lot of voice work. Um, he's Rick and Morty is his yeah. big, and Archer <laughs> are his two big shows. I highly recommend reading his book. I mean, because I always have such an immense, I'm going to get tearful, but I do. I love people and I'm so attracted to people that grow up with such hardship and miraculously they claw their way out of it and become fantastic humans. That's what keeps me doing what I do. Where they turn it around and they make it work for them. Yeah. Yeah. And are willing to help other people be open about it. I just absolutely love that. I was at a workshop one time, and it was a guy who, if you've ever read A Child Called It, mm-hmm. um, his upbringing almost put that one to shame. Mm-hmm. And the stories he were telling us were horrific. And he said, do I have any social workers or counselors in the audience? You know, a few of us raise our hand. And he just walked up to each one of us and said, thank you. I'm going to get teary-eyed. He yeah. said, without you guys, I would not be here. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that's why we do what we do. And I'm just sitting there in awe of him. I'm like, you had a total shit upbringing. Mm-hmm. And here you are, this motivating, inspirational human. Mm-hmm. Right. Tony Robbins, the teeth guy, mm-hmm. um, the motivational, inspirational, makes a lot of money doing what he does. Um, he always says, like, his mom was horribly abusive. And without her, he wouldn't be who he is today because it started out just trying to prove her wrong. Right. Or teaching you what you don't want to do and who yeah. you don't want to be. And he said that. He goes, I, I don't know I would appreciate the mom that my wife is if I hadn't had the mom that I had. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think all of us go into this business for a reason. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't think any of us have Pollyanna upbringings. I mean, a lot. Not all. Every family's dysfunctional. Your family, my family, the families we're raising. It's just to what degree. Yeah. So, and one other thing that I'd, I'd like to close with today is that, you know, when it comes to religion and spirituality, to me personally, therapy is spiritual. When I am giving someone 100% of me, and I pray for my clients, I think about my clients, you know, I'll read an article and I'll be like, oh, Susie could really benefit from this. I don't go into this because I have, I want to make money. I went into this because this is sacred work. I believe it is sacred work. And I believe you have to love your clients to really benefit them. You do. And if you can't accept them exactly where they're at in that moment, instead of where you think you should be, maybe take a step back for a while. I mean, they pro- there's plenty that don't like me. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. Everybody loves Dr. Fran. Right, right. <laughs> We've never, neither one of us has ever been called too blunt, ever. Never. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're your shrinks. And that's a wrap.